Hello and welcome to the Travel Diaries podcast. I'm your host, journalist Holly Rubenstein, and here each week I'll be speaking to a very special guest about the seven chapters in their life's travel diaries. From their earliest childhood travel memory and the first place they fell in love with, to their hidden gem and what's at the top of their travel bucket list. We'll be uncovering their adventures around the world and the travel experiences and destinations that have shaped their lives. On today's episode, we are joined by Ama Latif, the self-described blind guy who wants to show you the world. Due to an incurable eye condition, Ama lost 95% of his sight by the time he turned 18. Through sheer determination, he's managed to turn a tale of loss into one of truly inspirational achievement. Ama became known to millions through the groundbreaking BBC series Beyond Boundaries, which followed a group of disabled adventurers trekking 220 miles through Central America. The experience showed Amma that being blind didn't have to mean never seeing the world. But when he sought to take his adventures further afield, he found himself facing rejection after rejection. Conventional travel companies refused to take him as an independent blind traveler. So Amma set out to establish a company that would determined to travel the world and to empower thousands of other blind travelers to do the same, Amma founded Travel Eyes, now a world-unique award-winning tour operator, which provides an innovative way for blind and sighted travelers to explore the world together. They offer over 70 destinations a year. Amma has featured on numerous TV shows since. Of course, he was on Celebrity MasterChef. His uh, documentary, Riverwalks, recently won a Royal Television Society Award. And his show, Travelling Blind, which saw him partnered up with comedian Sarah Pascoe as they travelled through Turkey together. That was one that I really found so impactful and inspiring it really showed the dynamics of traveling as a sighted and visually impaired duo um, and I really recommend watching it if you haven't yet seen it I, I just love chatting to Amma his enthusiasm and passion for travel is completely contagious I'm sure that you'll agree and he's one of my best travel guests he's been to well over 100 countries today he takes us from Morocco to Mecca from Cuba to Cape Town and so much more. So let's get started. Amalatif, welcome to the Travel Diaries podcast. It is amazing to have you on. How are you today? I'm good, thank you. Thanks for having me on. Um, a little bit bald. Uh, you know, I used the wrong uh, shampoo once upon a time, so I've lost my hair. But other than that, I'm fine. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> and travel is obviously so important to you. You visited over 100 countries, is that right? Oh my goodness, yes, about that. I've lost count now. Um, but it just started happening and for the last 20 years just kept traveling with my groups 15 times a year and it was like part wow. of a passion and then part of my job and uh, yeah 100 countries later um, traveled so much. So we have a lot of ground to cover today. We are going <laughs> Well, to... hopefully I won't take you through all the hundred countries, you know. <laughs> we'll be a bit selective. <laughs> I mean, I we, we need to do an extended edition, essentially, don't we? Because, I mean, this is so fascinating to have been able to 
experienced so much of the world. And I, I love speaking to people who, who've traveled so extensively because to pick seven different places or, or, or seven there or thereabouts, these places really have to stand out in your memory. So I'm very interested to hear what your travel diaries bring up for us today. We'll start right at the very beginning with chapter one. That is your earliest childhood travel memory. You won't believe this, Holly, but as a child, we didn't used to travel much at all. We never went overseas. Mm-hmm. My my parents came from Pakistan. So my mum and dad came over in the 60s. My dad came in 66. And he said that the most intelligent woman in his life was his mother, because she said, son, if you go over to that place called England, you'll end up marrying one of those madams and you'll forget about your poor mother. So before uh, my dad left, she said, I'm going to get you married. So she got married to my mum and she said, I'm going to hold on to your wife and because uh, then I'll know that you'll come back <laughs> once you establish yourself. <laughs> so three years later, my dad got established and then he brought my mum over and that was in 69. And wow. So they came from poverty. So, you know, life growing up was just my dad working so hard, Mm -hmm. um, like people did when they came from those countries. And so when I I grew up in Glasgow, so our holidays were, oh my God, it was so exciting. It was to Blackpool. Blackpool. (laughs) Yeah. And we'd wake up in the morning. Uh, five o'clock in the morning, my dad would uh, you know close his takeaway. He had a kebab shop in the centre of Glasgow, which we've still mm-hmm. got, mm-hmm. and we'd be all ready and we'd pack all the stuff in the car, and off we would go on this four or five hour uh, drive down to Blackpool, and it was amazing because we 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 my mum would make all the food. And uh, amongst her food was the famous green chutney that was on Celebrity MasterChef. You know, yeah. Greg and John absolutely loved it. You know, they, Greg was going around the whole uh, <laughs> studio saying, everyone loves Amherst Mum's green chutney. And you did such an amazing job as well. Oh, thank you. Thank you. So, yeah, we never used to stop at service stations except, you know, to use the facilities um, because we couldn't, uh, you know, like m- my parents didn't want to spend m- money on that. And mm-hmm. nowadays, like Holly, if you and me were traveling around the UK, you'd find me getting so excited to be like, Holly, can we please stop at a service station? You know? Really? That it still has that kind of excitement even oh, now? Absolutely. I just love it, you know, like, and my friends are like, yeah, we'll stop, Amber, but why are you so excited? You <laughs> And did you so you and you loved Blackpool? Did you? Was it just so exciting as well? I did. Like, I mean, I've been living in England for twenty years now, so I've kind of got used to like you know your accent and stuff, Holly. But like coming down, you know, from Glasgow where everybody's talking like Lorraine Kelly, <laughs> um, to you know coming down to England and the accents were different, and going to Pleasure Beach and the excitement and you know there was that laughing man. I just remember him. He used to make me feel so happy. This this thing that just kept laughing. <laughs> like um, they have a lot of fairgrounds, don't they? they that's right. Yeah. Um, so we were like, it, it was all relative. That was so exciting for us. The rides, the beach, like never ever been to the sea except at Blackpool. So that was all very exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'd say that was like the very early memories. But then as I moved into my mid-teens, I actually was fortunate enough to go with my auntie and my cousin 
to Saudi Arabia on the Great Hajj. Oh, wow. You know, and, and I remember being on the plane and they played Arabic music and it sounded so exotic, like deserts and Arabia. Yeah. And I remember I was so excited. We landed and we arrived and there was millions of people. And growing up as a Muslim kid, I thought you could only be Muslim if you were Pakistani, you know, and my colour. But like there was people from Africa, you know, black people, Chinese people, Indonesian, um, white people, mm-hmm. basically a whole melting pot of people in Mecca, uh, you know, as we were making our way around God's house in the mosque there. And it was just so incredible. I'd never been packed together with thousands and thousands of people, you know, all with, you know, God in their heart and everybody being nice to each other. And although it was overwhelmingly busy, I just remember how kind everyone was. Wow. And then we went to, for Mecca. It it was such an incredible experience. And from Mecca, we went to Medina, uh, where you finish off your Hajj. And there's like, if you imagine big fields of millions of tents everywhere. Jesus, I don't know how we found our tent, <laughs> but you just do. And uh, When we finished the Hajj off, you know, it was an incredible experience. But then I I remember being in the Jeddah airport. I spent three nights in the airport because I traveled on a brand new Pakistani passport and the authorities at the airport said, nope, we, uh, we've got no evidence that you're British. You're Pakistani. I was like, I've never even been to Pakistan. Nope, we don't believe you. So they said, you have to go to the British embassy. Oh, no. But they wouldn't let me out of the airport, Holly. So I couldn't go to the British embassy. And so we spent three nights in this airport. I was probably about 15 years old. My cousin was 11. My auntie didn't speak any English. And I just thought, oh, my God, this is just ridiculous. And This was at the end of your trip? This was at the end of our trip. So, so you I must just, have been knackered as well. Absolutely knackered from this pilgrimage, um, exhausted. We're sleeping on the floor of Jeddah Airport and um, auntie couldn't speak the English. So I was trying to explain to the authorities, look, I've got a Scottish accent. <laughs> I pulled out my library card, you know, in Glasgow. I belong to this uh, library in the south of Glasgow called Langside. I said, look, this is my picture. Like, well, we don't care. Um and in the end, we met these uh, lovely people that said, oh, you need to bribe a taxi driver and, um, you know, you need to hide in the car and he'll take you out the airport and we'll meet you at the side of a road. So 2 a.m., um, the taxi dropped us off in the middle of the countryside and we're like, we were hiding behind trees and I'm thinking, I hope this family come and pick us up. And they did. They were so kind. Um, you know, the Arab hospitality is just so incredible. They took us to their house, fed us, and we stayed there. Next day, went to the British Embassy, sorted out the papers, and flew back. So that was my Goodness. first proper overseas what trip. A, what amazing first overseas experience. I mean, that because I imagine that for people of the Muslim faith, going there for that experience is like the ultimate kind of travel bucket list experience to be part of something that meaningful. Um, Was that the case for you? I mean, did it, has it stuck with you even now? It has stuck with me even now. And you're absolutely right because one of the pillars of Islam is 
that you should go to Mecca. Mm. So everybody wants to go there. And, you know, the, if, you, if you're a believer, you believe in it, it is the ultimate place to go to. And everybody dreams of going there. And when you arrive, you know, it's you, you've built this thing in your head as well. And so it means so, so much. And I couldn't believe that I actually, you know, made it there in my teens. Could you set, could you sense the spirituality kind of in the air? Like, could you, or, or, or in the architecture, was it, I imagine with places like that, that there's a, an atmosphere that in kind of engulfs it, that makes it so memorable. Absolutely. So, you know, you're in this mosque and as soon as you step in, you know, they say that God's house is in there. And so you have this like overwhelming feeling taking over and it's hard to put into words like every atom in your body is just so inspired mm. and then when you're going around Kaaba which is God's house like you just want to touch it and because you know I was losing my sight and we told them that I couldn't see that well um, they were basically letting me try and touch it and but it was so hard because like you know there's thousands of people going around at one point I fell and then people are almost about to trample you so like there's it's quite scary but at the same time it's just awe-inspiring well that sounds like an unforgettable uh travel memory for sure moving on then to chapter two Amma, that is the first place that you fell in love with what would that be well it was canada it's a bit of a long story um but it's um it's a place that gave me independence because when I was four years old, the doctors broke the news to my parents that I would become incurably blind by my mid to late teens. So as I was growing up, I was losing a little bit of my sight, but I was still riding my bike at the age of 16 and 17. Mm -hmm. But when I was 18 years old, I remember waking up one morning and I couldn't see the poster hanging opposite the end of my bed. And I remember that day I was walking around crashing into things and I and I couldn't see the faces of my parents. And oh. I realized that that I was now blind. Mm. Um, you know, and I remember thinking, I don't, I don't want to be blind. You know, this is the perfect time. You know, my age, um, there's lots of things I want to do. But the reality was that my life was now going to change forever. Yeah. So, I mean, it was a time that I was about to go to uni to study math, stats and finance. You know, because my dream was I always wanted to be an accountant. <laughs> <laughs> and um I think quite a contrast to what you end, end up doing now exactly yeah and I think <laughs> I wanted to be an accountant because when I was 12 there was a girl in my class and I really fancied her and she said when she grows up she wanted to be an accountant so I thought that accountancy was really sexy <laughs> <laughs> boy was I um right <laughs> but but yeah uh so I lost my sight but lecturers and teachers were saying, look, I think we should study things like history or English because it's a bit easier. But I was passionate. I wanted to be an accountant. And I remember my dad's, you know, encouraging me. And I'm like, Dad, I don't know how I'm going to do this. Because even, you know, back in the 90s, like the accounts offices, they used a lot of paper. And I'm like, how am I going to manage to do this? And my dad, I remember him saying, look, son, 
let's just take things one step at a time. Yeah. And I did. And I was introduced to remember cassettes. Yeah. <laughs> a cassette recorder. <laughs> of course. You know, I'm, I'm, quite young, Holly. I'm quite old. I'm quite old. I don't know. You look quite young to me, Holly, you know. <laughs> But I don't know how much of a compliment that is coming from a blind guy. <laughs> yeah, I'm um, 34. So I had all my first things on cassettes. Yeah. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. Um, well, I got my head around how to record my textbooks and lecture notes um, onto cassettes. And I built up my confidence. And so in my second year, I found out that there was an opportunity to go and study in Canada. And I didn't really know anything about Canada and where it was. Um, but I just loved the idea of heading off and going somewhere completely new um, because I, I thought enough was enough. You know, I didn't want to spend my life being wrapped up in cotton wool and live in a protective box because everyone was telling me that I couldn't do this and I couldn't do that. My mum was always saying, look, son, you know, don't go out by yourself. And so I realised that I've only got one life and this is it and I'm going to live it, you know, and I'm going to be independent. Mm -hmm. So with just me and my newly acquired blindness, we headed off to Canada. That's so brave. Well, I guess um, it may may have been ignorant, you know, like, (laughs) uh, you know, ignorance is a bliss. But I just thought. I want to head off somewhere and 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 and, and live, have this independent experience. So I remember I was on the plane all the way from Glasgow to Toronto and I had butterflies in my stomach. I was so excited. Amazing. And I remember when I arrived there I didn't know anybody and I was on the bus to a place called Kingston because I went to Queen's University and that's where they have the um, there's the Thousand Islands there in Lake Ontario, and that's where the dressing, the salad dressing, gets its name from. I know, way Thousand yeah. Island dressing, right? Okay, exactly. and that's outside Toronto. Yes, so about two hours outside Toronto, a place called Kingston. It's a little town with about population sixty thousand, mm-hmm. and this lake is absolutely amazing. You've got beautiful walks along the lakeside, and you've got all these little islands. Some are owned by America, some are owned by Canada. Right. And um, yeah, and, and and I went there, it was August 1995, and I, I got off the bus, you know, hoping someone was going to meet me and this wonderful lady called Susan. She was head of the international students uh, at Queen's University. Who, she, she met me and she turned out to be such an incredible lady. Um, but I had the most amazing time in Canada. Um, I met up with... Um, so many international students from all over the world and from not knowing much about the world outside Glasgow I just learned so much yeah. you know um my Italian friends with their Italian accents uh, Japanese friends Jap- you know German friends we got on like a house on fire um I remember they encouraged me to 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 join this international students ice hockey team you know, because back in Glasgow, I used to go uh, ice skating at St. Enoch Centre. Uh-huh. And I became really good at ice skating. Yeah. and But obviously, I'm blind, you know, so I couldn't see the puck. <laughs> <laughs> but it was so funny because my international friends, they couldn't ice skate, uh, but they could see the puck. And I could ice skate, but I couldn't see the puck. But 
but I did all right, you know, like yeah. I was um, scoring a few of the goals. Nice. Uh, and uh, so that was quite amazing. And so did that give you the taste for travel then? Because I mean, as you said, you you, know, you didn't travel much with your family. You'd had this amazing kind of one-off experience going to Saudi Arabia. But was this your really first time getting exposed to, you know, being being for an extended period of time somewhere that's not home? Absolutely. I mean, that's where my passion for travel was sparked, you know, and um, I, it, it helped me to realize that if you push yourself out of your comfort zone, mm-hmm. you know, your world becomes bigger. Yeah. And, you know, as we get older, like I'm just thinking, you know, if I'd lost my sight now and I suddenly decide to go off, I, I don't think I could do it as much, you know, but but it's yeah. so important to, you know, capture that passion that we have when we're younger and, you know, and, 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 and be willing to, 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 to do things that make us feel a little bit uneasy. You know, I always say like when you feel that uneasiness, that's when you know you're growing and... Mm-hmm. And I've managed to apply that, you know, to the in, in other experiences in my life. And I've always found that it really, really helps. Like even, you know, during um, COVID times, you, you know, when my friends were saying, look, you know, we, we can't, you know, go walking with you because, you know, we're not bubbling with you, uh, you know, because we're bubbling with our families. And it was so hard to just like venture out. But I thought, you know, whenever whenever you are willing to venture out your comfort zone, some amazing things happen. Mm-hmm. And it was cool because I managed to go out walking in the countryside um, and I managed to come up with an idea of my friends guiding me through my phone, uh, through the video camera on my phone. And it was the first time ever that I managed to walk in the woods and the countryside all by myself. Wow. Uh, you know, with my friends guiding me through my uh, my phone. Oh, and how was that? That was so incredible. It was amazing. My friends would say, Amr, if you reach down to your right, you'll feel the bluebells. On your left, you'll feel some sunflower. Mm-hmm. There's green foliage all around you. And I, and at one point I said, do you mind if I turn this call off? Because I just want to experience what it's like to be in the wilderness by yourself and And uh, I did that, and that just felt so magical. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Today's episode is supported by Airbnb. 
It has been a long old winter here in the UK and in between podcast seasons I'm going to take a little bit of downtime to seek out some warmth. I'm jetting off to the Greek island of Mykonos visiting some places that have been on my bucket list and while I'm hopefully soaking up some Mediterranean sun my home will be hosting guests from all over the world thanks to Airbnb. It's the perfect way to make your travels even more rewarding. Instead of letting your home sit empty while you're off exploring new destinations, why not turn it into a cozy retreat for fellow travellers just like I do. Whether you choose to rent out your entire space or just a spare room, it's up to you. I list my spare bedroom and it's been a fantastic experience, both financially rewarding and a great way to connect with new people. So if you're planning your own summer getaway or any trip for that matter, consider putting your home on Airbnb. It's a fantastic way to earn extra income that can go towards your travel expenses, souvenirs, or even that special treat you've been eyeing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.co.uk forward slash host. Thank you to Airbnb for supporting the Travel Diaries. Having had your site and then and then not, I'm just curious, like how how do you how do you go about then experiencing a destination? What are the most important elements of of your experience when you're traveling? And and how are you adjusted to that? I suppose, um, you know, when you when you arrive somewhere, what 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 is the most important thing to give you the best perspective of what what it is that you're where, where you are? Well, it's a very good question, and the fact that I'm blind, I think it makes traveling around the world uh, more engaging uh, rather than. I would say being sighted because I feel sorry for you sighted folk, you know, especially these days because when sighted people travel, you pull out your phones, you take that perfect sh- shot for Instagram. And sometimes I feel that a lot of people miss out uh, with engaging with what's around them. Mm-hmm. So as a blind person, when I arrive, I've obviously got my sighted traveler building the pictures of what I can see. But like, you're, you're focused on all your other senses as well. So, you know, when I'm in Egypt and you see these 3,000 year old tempos, like I'm actually getting my sighted traveler to describe them. So I'm building a picture in my head. So I have this vivid idea. Then I'm touching these um, hieroglyphics, you know, which are amazing. Like I'm pretty sure that the Egyptians made them so that blind people could read as well, you know, because yeah. uh, they're so tactile. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, so, and, and when you're walking in Italy through cobble streets, like you're aware of the cobblestones under your feet, you're listening to the chatter all around you of the, you know, like the Italian accent or, you know, wherever you are, Canada. Um, and, and it's just, and, and you get all these inputs coming into you. And that just gives you a full on experience of places that you go. Mm-hmm. And also, you connect with people. So, you know, I've been to places like Peru, um, you know, where they've never met a blind person before in, in, in some of these remote islands, but yet they, um, they, they reach out. And, um, you know, I took a tour group there once in 2010 to Lake Titicaca. Mm-hmm, and then we went there one year later and they had made this model of their island with everything to scale so that my blind travellers could 
experience it. So there's just so many amazing ways to experience the world when you're blind. Oh, that's so inspiring. And chapter three is the place where you learned the most about yourself. Um, I mean, it feels like you've been through so much, so many experiences that would mean that you were learning a lot about yourself and and being challenged. What comes to mind is the, the place that really was pivotal for you. I guess there's like so many places like I'm learning all the time. But one of the places um, after I had graduated, I moved down to Leeds and I qualified as an accountant and I worked for, you know, British Telecom for about six, seven years. And I got into acting and an opportunity came up where the BBC were looking for uh, 11 disabled people to go on this incredible challenge. It was called, it was for a BBC documentary called Beyond Boundaries. Mm -hmm. And I was selected and off we went to Nicaragua in Central America. And our goal was to walk from the Atlantic coast to the Pacific Ocean. So right throughout the country of Nicaragua, 220 miles. And we had to trek through... Uh, thick, dense, tropical jungles across a shark-infested lake Uh. and up a 5,000-foot volcano to make it to the finishing line. They didn't make it easy for you then? No, they didn't. And, (laughs) you know, I was thinking, oh, uh, you know, this is television. Maybe, you know, there'll be a TV side and then, you know, maybe they'll make it comfortable for us. But absolutely not. They wanted us to work together as a team. So there was myself, I was blind. There was uh, two people in wheelchairs. Someone was missing an arm. Someone was deaf. I I was just thinking on the way there, like, you know, if there was a plane crash and we landed and they'd be like, oh, did you did you come with an arm or did did you have a leg? What were you missing? You know, I was thinking, oh, my goodness. Um, But during that trip, Holly, I learned so much. You know, it was so tough. We were trekking from four o'clock in the morning till about eight o'clock at night in 40 degrees heat. Jeez. And because I'm like six foot tall and I was pretty, you, you know, physically fit, the only thing was I couldn't see. So my task was like pushing a wheelchair across this jungle. And that was so hard. It was so hot. It was tough. The terrain was just so relentless. And every moment, I kept thinking, I don't think I can do this. At the next break, I'm just going to tell them I've had enough. Um, But it it turned out that it wasn't physical anymore. And that's what I learned, that it wasn't, it didn't matter how fit I was. It all came from the mind, the mindset, and how you work with your mindset to to, to overcome any challenge in life. And, uh, you know, and that taught me about resilience. Um, and I just kept tricking myself. So like, okay, we'll just keep going for another few hours. And it was so, so incredible. I worked with some incredible people on on the trip. It taught me about trust as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so we were, after we'd crossed the shark infested lake, got to the bottom of this 5,000 foot volcano and we started climbing it. And we spent one day climbing up to the shoulder and then we had to sleep in sleeping bags on the shoulder of this volcano. 
Um, and they said, basically, if you wake up in the middle of the night, you know, please don't go, you know, to the, you know, outside by yourself, wake up your partner. So that's what we had to do. So I remember waking up my um, tent buddy and he said, Amr, do you mind if I just guide you from the tent? I was like, okay. And so two o'clock in the morning, nature's call. And he's like, okay, uh, 11 o'clock. No, 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 sorry, one o'clock. Now, had he got it wrong, I would have fallen 2,000 foot into a shark-infested lake. Oh, my God. You know, and, um, you know, but, but but the thing is, people say, you know, you're blind. How do you trust people? And I always say, like, in my life, by trusting people, that's how I've got to where I have. And if you don't trust people, you'd be, like, living in your apartment, and that's not fun. Mm. So, you know, by, by trusting people and going out and doing things, you know, incredible things have have happened yeah and did did that I mean you've undertaken quite a few big physical challenges haven't you over the years in terms of like big walks and treks and and things like that and your travels I imagine it did did going to Nicaragua give you um a taste for the jungle and you know I imagine that in terms of a, a place that is a real assault on the senses like a sensational destination a jungle I imagine is really up there absolutely I mean I remember the first night that we arrived in the jungle so we took a military plane and then we went on a boat and you know the guys were describing the jungle like um you know it was just like green like you see in the cartoons you know we're driving along and then we arrive into this jungle it's five o'clock in the evening and the night's falling and suddenly the jungle just comes alive Mm. and you hear uh, noises in 3d like (laughs) nature's own surround sound yeah you know, and it's just such an incredible experience. And most of the other guys would like start panicking at night because, you know, um, they suddenly couldn't see and the noises just got louder. But I loved it you know, because for me, it didn't make a difference. It was just like, you know, it was just the jungle saying to me, like, this is our living room. This is where we hang out, you know, and, and I was hearing all these sounds. And I remember the first night sleeping in our hammock you know, between two trees. Um, And at some points I did feel quite fearful. I was like, I'm just like a sandwich, you know, anything could just come and take a bite out of me, you know. (laughs) Well, chapter four then, Amma, is your all-time favourite destination of all these places that you visited. Where stands out for you today? I'd say this is always a very difficult one for course, me because yeah. I love so many places, you know, and I've been to so many, uh, I've had so many experiences. Um, but, you know, one of the places that I've been to probably about eight times and I've loved the most is Cuba. Oh, wow. I've always wanted to go to Cuba, never been. So bring it oh, to can life. Can I be your me. tour guide oh, there, Holly? Please. Yes. <laughs> your ninth trip. I'll, I'll join you. <laughs> yes. It is so, so incredible. Um, you know, as soon as you arrive, um, the warm weather, you're in your hotel room getting changed and you can hear life being lived out there like in terms of like the music playing um so Mm. there's lots of music in cuba um you know live musicians playing salsa music everywhere um 
And then, of course, it's like, it's, it's interesting. It's like, it's almost like it stood still in time. Um, and, you know, everything's very old fashioned. Like you've got the 1950s cars. And as a blind person, you know, like people can describe them on TV and in movies. But, you know, I'm there and I'm riding in them, mm-hmm. I'm feeling them. Mm-hmm. And it just feels like I've stepped back in time. Yeah. Um, you've got the the rich history, you know, whether you believe in communism or not. It's so incredible, the, the, the history and how, you know, Fidel Castro came to power and how they stood up to mighty America. Mm. Um, and, you know, and as a result, they have stood still in time and... For people like me that that's blind, I can go there and I can experience all of that. Um, the vibrancy you know, of it all together. Absolutely. Um, you know, you're walking through the old town with the cobblestones. Uh, you know, there's the Ambus Mundus Hotel where Ernest Hemingway, I don't know if you've read some of his books, but, you know, I've read mm-hmm. quite a lot of his books mm. and he used to, he spent seven years writing his books in there. So romantic got, to think of that, isn't it? Some romantic exactly. notion, yeah. And you've got the Rum Museum. Um, you know, when we're traveling there with my with my travelized group, you know, group of blind and sight travelers, we're driving along in our bus, and you see these sugarcane plantations. And many of our blind travelers haven't touched a sugarcane before, so we just stop the bus and we're running around in these sugarcane plantations and we always find some man with a machete and he always like, don't worry, it's in a safe way, um, <laughs> and he chops us some sugarcane and we're there at the side of this field, you know, chomping away at sugarcane. Um, oh, how fantastic. And, and and then salsa dancing on beautiful, perfect white sandy beaches. Um, we horse ride you know, through the Cuban countryside, um, swimming in rivers. And the people, the Cuban people are just so friendly. You know, it's, it's such an incredible place. I absolutely love it. I mean, of course, wherever you go, you, you know, you have to do your research and that's really, really important. So when I'm traveling with my groups, like it's so important to explain to them that, you know, most of the hotels back in the day, they used to be mostly owned by the Cuban government. Mm-hmm. So it's a bit like if you imagine hotels being run by our city councils here, you know, so you can imagine they're not as uh, slick and entrepreneurial. Yeah. So like sometimes you have to queue for quite a while before you check in. So as long as, you know, all this sort of stuff, then you can relax into it. But I can just, just go imagine. With the flow. Go with the flow. Exactly. Um, oh, yeah, sounds it's wonderful. such an incredible place. Given how many times that you've been there, I assume that you've travelled like quite a lot around the island as well, not just Havana. So I've travelled from Havana. We usually spend a few days there, and you know that's such an incredible place with its old town, rum museums, um, the history museum where you learn a lot about Cuba. Travelling to Cienfuegos, which is this French colonial city. Um, which is incredible. And then to Trinidad City. And Trinidad City, you arrive in it and it's so laid back. The, a lot of the guys in Trinidad City don't work and they're just hanging around, you know. It's so <laughs> funny. I think I think the women do all the hard work there. But there you can eat in in the houses of the locals, you know, you beautiful lobster. And I remember in Trinidad City, we, we go horse riding 
through the countryside. Um, then you tie your horses up and you're swimming in the river. It's just so incredible. And the Caribbean Sea there is just so warm mm. and so still. Mm. So at night, um, you know, I remember just like thinking this is just heaven. So you've got the moon shining on this still water that's like a bath with a white sandy beach and you're just having midnight swims. Oh, how and then magical. It is, it is, that's, that's the word for it, Holly. It's, it's magical, it's still, and it's just so beautiful. Um, and then from Trinidad City, we travelled to Santa Clara and that's where... You know, it was quite an important place because Che Guevara stopped the, the, the train, which eventually led in um, Fidel Castro, you know, taking over. So we go to that museum, um, you get to go on board the train and, mm-hmm. you know, that's very special. Yeah. And then the last few days, you want to just relax on the beach. And so there's like loads of lovely all-inclusive um, hotels in Veradero. And actually, that's where I offered, um, you know, our groups the opportunity to go skydiving. But bizarrely, only the blind ones wanted to do it. <laughs> <laughs> what do you um, think if you were to psychoanalyze that? What would you what would you be? Well, I don't know. I just think that sighted people are not as brave as blind people. Yeah, but of yeah. course, um, <laughs> You know, um, people think you're blind, so you know you can't see the drop, so it doesn't really matter. <laughs> it was actually a Soviet Russian helicopter that we went up in. Oh Maybe the sighted folk saw how um, dangerous <laughs> that looked. You know, <laughs> yes. So then I was leading six blind people onto this helicopter, you know, and the sighted folk didn't want to go, um, <clears throat> so they were waiting on the beach for us. And I remember we went up 10,000 feet and, um, you know, the, the pilot was describing what he could see and then it was time to jump. And uh, I, I remember like just jumping out of this helicopter and feeling the wind and the elements bombarding your entire sensory system yeah. from every side. Yeah. And it just felt so free like a bird miles above the ground and I I just absolutely loved it Did and the, the guy that I was you know parachuting with he was just describing what he could see below so even though I couldn't see it I knew that what was below me like the ocean the beach and when we were just free falling it just you, you literally just did feel like a bird and then our sighted folk were waiting down below. So I think they could just see these black dots coming down from the sky <laughs> <laughs> and landing beside them. So it was, it was quite an experience. Oh, that sounds uh, absolutely incredible. What a place to do it as well. I did it in my shorts and t-shirt and it was just so nice and warm. Ugh, uh, what an incredible experience. How fantastic. Well, chapter five, Emma, is your hidden gem. That is a place that you love that maybe my listeners wouldn't know so much about that you've discovered along along your travels. Um, yes, I mean, there's so many places that I've experienced and kind of places where I've gone there and thought, oh my goodness, this is just so amazing. Like, mm-hmm. and, and, and why do people not know about this? 
actually, that's the reason why they're amazing as well, because <laughs> many people don't know about them, yeah. you know. Um, for example, one of the first trips I ever did when I set up my travel company, Travelize, was um, went to Spain, mm-hmm. so closer to home, mm-hmm. and in Andalusia. And um, they've got these uh, rural villages um, like Algamitas, um, where you've got like lots of arable land, sunflowers and olive groves. And they've got these beautiful little farmhouses. And it is so, so peaceful because I sometimes struggle finding places in the world where you can't hear any traffic or planes yeah and you know I think when you're blind you know it's not that my other senses are heightened it's just that you, you your energy is going into the four instead of the five senses mm-hmm. so I'm, I'm more kind of like switched on about that so you know in these little rural white villages it's just so incredible um and I love them in, in other places like for example in Morocco in the Atlas Mountains where the Berbers live, yeah. you know, time has stood still. They're going uh, to the local markets on donkeys, yeah. you know, and you're walking through these mountainous villages and the local people, they're so lovely. They don't have much, but when they're baking their bread on their stoves outside, they see me with my groups walking past and they're like, uh, you know, they communicate to us and they, they give us bread and, and we're having this amazing moment with them. And it's so peaceful and it's so wonderful. Time stood still. You, you, you're seeing people making clay pots like they have been doing for centuries. These are the kind of places that are so special. Mm, you hear um, the call to prayer. Hear, oh God, the call to prayer. Yeah. Um, you know, and you've got lots of little mosques in different places. And, you know, it's kind of got that haunting sound. Mm. Um, it's just so amazing. I, I absolutely love it. So I'd say like these, these are my hidden gems. And, um, you know, and going to like Peru, to Lake Titicaca, you know, meeting some indigenous people on these remote islands. Places that offer with, real tranquility. Real tranquility and where you feel you're genuinely connecting with humanity. Yeah. You know, I absolutely um, love. Well, in contrast to, you know, these positive and meaningful experiences, chapter six is your worst travel experience or the place that you'd never go back to. Where comes to mind there? Yeah, some some places that you travel to can be quite, um, you know, challenging because of the, the culture um, or because of the way that they've been brought up. Um, for example, Japan, it can be very tricky, um, you know, uh, because of their rules and etiquette. I mean, I love Japan. You know, I love the contrast of the traditions and the modern high-tech stuff. But as a blind guy traveling to Japan, you know, you need to do things in a slightly different way that might not quite fit into the rules, you know, that they've got. Um, in what way? Like, what kind of rules do you mean? Like, for example, when when I'm traveling there as an entrepreneur uh, with my groups, you know, w- you might need some, um, you know, some flexibility as to some you know, things might need to be adapted or, you know, um, some sometimes we put on some excursions mm-hmm. Um mm-hmm. 
and you know if special considerations need to be given to someone that's blind uh you know often the japanese will say well why should we do this we've not been told to do this and you're like well this isn't something that someone's going to sit you down and tell you about but you know they don't have that element of be going freestyle right i see what you mean have you have you faced discriminatory behavior having a disability traveling you know you've been to so many different countries and so you know cultures deal with disability or impairments in different ways have you had any negative experiences that have put you off a destination because of that well I mean, yes, we get, you know, you, you experience people treating you differently, like certain countries I'll go to, they'll chat to my sighted assistant and mm. I'll answer back and I'll say, yes, the answers to your questions are yes, yes and no, but why did you think you needed to ask the taxi driver? <laughs> yeah. And, um, you know, but but we have a laugh about it. I think sense of humour is amazing. And then they yeah. suddenly realise, oh, okay, Um you know, a lot of the times they don't, they've never seen blind people traveling. Uh, and so, you know, they're, they're, they're in a bit of a shock. And, you know, we, we have to tell the hotels, look, you know, we are coming along, but you don't need to like, you know, walk on eggshells. It's absolutely fine, you know, and suddenly we arrive and there's this group of blind and sighted travelers and, you know, we're having such a great time, mm-hmm. you know, and, 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 and it's, it's actually great because it's a great platform to help people change their mindsets about disability yeah but but you're you're right there are some places that I've been to for example in Africa um some remote places where I've seen things that haven't been that comfortable we've been to this um you know these remote villages uh in uh the Gambia Mm -hmm. and there uh, I decided um you know to go to a school for for blind kids just to see how things are. Mm-hmm. And I came across this little boy and he was six years old and he was like sat there in all fours, just grunting. And I said to the teacher, oh, you know, what's that? She goes, oh, that's a little boy and he's six. And um, he's just come joined our school a few months ago. And prior to that, his parents had locked him in a room and they just fed him food, but they didn't want the neighbors to know that they had a kid that was blind oh my goodness. because they believe in uh that, that that he might be taken over by demons oh, God. um and then they might come and you know uh you know attack him and so he spent his first few years of his life just living like an animal in a in a room and it was only recently that he went into school and you see things like that, um, you know, in certain parts of Africa, if you're an albino, um, you know, it, they, they, they treat you in the same way. Mm. And things like mm-hmm. this are very difficult. But, but you know, traveling is great because it shows you these things and then you can work a way to, you know, work together and, and, and help people. I've spoken at the United Nations in Ethiopia um, many years ago and you know I learned about you know there was different African leaders that came to that and you know that was the first time that my eyes were open to this that's why traveling is so so important yeah because it really teaches you about other cultures and 
and um, you know it helps to put you in a position where you can change the world you know for the better mm-hmm. are there are there some destinations that you'd say are really you know excelling at uh, making strides for accessible travel because I know you know you're an advocate for accessible travel not just for visually impaired and blind people but for everyone who has any any difficulty with traveling yeah I mean it's it's a great question yes there are places like you'll be surprised America is pretty bad in the big cities to have accessible traffic lights like for example New York when I was there uh, a few years ago blind people are having to dice with death you know Mm. when they're crossing the roads Um, and you think oh my god it's such a developed country then although some of the remote parts of Africa are like this I've been to some you know modest places where I found perfectly placed braille in the (laughs) elevators Mm -hmm. then I've been to some ostentatious places like in Dubai and found none you know um, it really really varies I mean Japan actually although I um said Japan was inflexible in terms of, uh, you know, adjustments. But one of the great things about Japan was that they've got, in, on their sidewalks, they've got these little train tracks, like just indented train tracks. And for the first few days, me and my blind travellers, we were like tripping over them and like thinking, what what the hell is this? And then we realised that they put there for blind people no to help way. us walk in a straight line. Oh, no way. Like, oh, okay. Um so it really, really varies, you know, from country to country. Yeah. Um, and some of the places that you think would be great for accessibility um, perhaps uh, are not. But, you know, people always say, like, where do you, how do you choose which place to go to, you know, with, you know, with my groups? And um, I don't choose places based on whether they're going to be accessible for, for me as a blind person. You know, I choose them whether they're exciting and interesting in general mm-hmm. and then I go about doing my research and finding out how I can get the most out of a place mm-hmm. you know I've, I focus on uh, the sensory aspects how I can bring them out but then I don't want to miss out on you know amazing sightseeing opportunities because you know I people say like yeah why do you want to travel when you can't see like I, I say because I can't see it heightens my curiosity So I get sight folk to describe and build a picture in my head of what something looks like. And often that thing can be better than a sighted person just glancing and moving on because it's a bit like reading a book versus watching a film, I would say. Uh When you're reading a book, you know, there's those words on a page help build pictures in your head and and um you know your imagination goes wild and 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 that's often better than actually watching the film you're like oh i prefer the book version yeah yeah yes yeah and so i can strongly recommend the blind version (laughs) (laughs) oh emma we've traveled all around the world it's been so interesting and inspiring and fascinating chatting to you we're on to the final chapter of your travel diaries now and that is the destination that is at the top of your travel bucket list chapter seven the top of my bucket list is cornwall cornwall (laughs) that is i have to say a very good choice one of my favorite places basically because i've not been there 
I want to have some, uh, you know, high tea when I get there and work <laughs> out what they do with their jams and their creams. <laughs> Which but, way round do you go? Yeah, exactly. Um, but a lot of people have told me that Cornwall doesn't feel like um, the UK. Yeah. So I'd like to experiment that. And, you know, because I've been so fortunate to travel around the world. So Cornwall's on the list. And I guess if I could... Um, give you another one i guess it is to go to um you know the masai mara Mm -hmm. in africa Mm -hmm. and you know where where you've got the mass movement of animals and i'd love to just sit there and listen to them whizzing by just hearing all the different types of animals going past me and i'd love to like go towards the watering hole and just hearing hearing them drinking and stuff and just have that incredible experience yeah. with them i mean don't get me wrong you know am i am i am i a animal lover i love animals but you know people think that i'm this adventure and i'll travel all over the place which i do and i'll do all sorts of things but one thing that many people don't know about me is that i am a bit scared of animals because mm-hmm. i get frightened by things that i can't communicate with or can't communicate with me yeah um like an ex-girlfriend when it's over and, and she suddenly stops talking to you, you know and you don't know whether she's got a knife in her hand or and equally with um animals like you know that one end is full of teeth and the other end well we know what's at the other end <laughs> yeah so being blind it can be quite a dangerous thing but um but nevertheless i i, I love animals and um you know, I'd love to be able to hear that in the Masai Mara. Oh, wonderful. Well, I hope you make it to both of those places soon. I have no doubt that you will. Thank you. Thank you so much, Amalatif. Those were your travel diaries. It's been a joy to chat to you. Thank you so much for your time. It's been a real pleasure. It does feel like we've actually travelled the world, Polly. You've been a great travel companion. Thank you. I appreciate it. And so have you. And I hope that we can travel together in real life one day. I hope you'll agree that was such an uplifting conversation. A huge thank you to Amma for joining me on my 99th episode. So next week is the big 100. What a milestone. I actually can't quite believe it. And after nine seasons, I will be sharing my own travel diaries on the episode next week. So I really look forward to chatting more with you guys then. Thanks so much for listening today. If you'd like to hear more from the podcast, don't forget to hit subscribe or if you use Apple Podcasts to press follow so that a new episode lands in your podcast app each week. If you want to be the first to find out who's joining me on next week's episode, come and follow me on Instagram. I'd love to hear from you. I'm at Holly Rubenstein and you'll also find me on Twitter and TikTok as of a few weeks ago, also at Holly Rubenstein. And if you can't wait until then, remember there's the first eight seasons to catch up on. That's over 90 episodes to keep you busy there. All the destinations mentioned by my guests are included in the episode show notes here on your podcast app and listed on my website, thetraveldiariespodcast.com. Thanks everyone, and I'll be back next week. Today's episode is supported by Airbnb. 
it has been a long old winter here in the UK and in between podcast seasons I'm going to take a little bit of downtime to seek out some warmth. I'm jetting off to the Greek island of Mykonos visiting some places that have been on my bucket list and while I'm hopefully soaking up some Mediterranean sun my home will be hosting guests from all over the world thanks to Airbnb. It's the perfect way to make your travels even more rewarding. Instead of letting your home sit empty while you're off exploring new destinations, why not turn it into a cozy retreat for fellow travellers just like I do. Whether you choose to rent out your entire space or just a spare room, it's up to you. I list my spare bedroom and it's been a fantastic experience, both financially rewarding and a great way to connect with new people. So if you're planning your own summer getaway or any trip for that matter, consider putting your home on Airbnb. It's a fantastic way to earn extra income that can go towards your travel expenses, souvenirs, or even that special treat you've been eyeing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.co.uk forward slash host. Thank you to Airbnb for supporting the Travel Diaries. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. <laughs> 